2: Hey everybody, it's Dan. This is our Thursday edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast, and today it's Mary Kay, Ellis, and I, and we're going to talk about three different topics. Uh, We're all working on different things as we're recording this today on a Wednesday, so we're going to talk through those uh, on today's podcast. Uh, Before you get to the podcast, as always, make sure you check out Football Insider. uh, Cleveland.com slash Browns, there's a blue banner at the top of the page. You get an exclusive newsletter written every single day. I wrote today's, for example, it comes from, you know, we all sit down, we all contribute and write that newsletter. Uh, each day coming straight to your inbox exclusive content you also get access to exclusive stories on cleveland.com and of course there's our texting service uh, which a lot of people really love Uh, we text you you can text us back with questions we'll answer your questions directly Uh, the people who are part of that texting service really love it so you should check that out as well okay enough for me let's get to our podcast here on a thursday And away we go on our Thursday podcast. Like I said in the intro, uh, Mary Kay, Ellis, and I, we've all been working on different things today, and I thought, let's talk about what we've been working on. I think it's all interesting topics. So Mary Kay, get us started. The post, actually, you put it up just before we hit record here on this. Tell us what, uh, what you've been working on today.
1: Well, the post that I put up is, uh, it's a Browns insider. I'm trying to uh, cover a number of different topics as we go throughout the next couple of weeks on, on different big decisions that the Browns may or may not make in the off season. So the one uh, that I dealt with today was uh, Odell Beckham Jr. And the fact that they will have to at least consider trading him this off season. Uh, so the post basically uh, delves into Uh, you know sort of the the pros and cons of whether or not they should trade him and what I did was you know I kind of made the comparison of what the Vikings did with Stephon Diggs so Stephon Diggs gets traded to the Buffalo Bills and he went on to lead the NFL with 127 catches he led the NFL with 1535 yards uh, and he caught I can't remember if it was seven or eight touchdown passes Uh, And he was obviously a major reason why they ended up in the AFC Championship game. Uh, The Vikings, on the other hand, saved a boatload of cap space. And they also, with the number 22 overall pick that they got from the Bills, went ahead and drafted Justin Jefferson, which sets them up at the receiver position for the next how many ever years. And uh, his cap number was about 2.38 million dollars. Justin Jefferson's, and uh, Stephon Diggs was 14.8, and Justin Jefferson ended up with 88 catches for 1,400 yards, which was number four in the NFL from a yardage standpoint. And he oh he had seven touchdown catches, and Stephon Diggs had eight. So from a production standpoint, the Vikings really didn't you know lose all that much. And, you know, they gained a lot in terms of draft capital because they also got, you know, three other picks and, or four other picks maybe. And, uh, and they saved a lot on their cap. So now it's not going to always work out that beautifully, but as Brandon Bean, the Bill's general manager said today, this was a win-win for both clubs. So I think the Browns at least, at least have to seriously consider it. And again, there are many pros and cons, but I'll just throw it out there to you guys. You know, what what are your thoughts when you hear something like that?
2: Ellis,
0: you go first. Well, first off, I thought I was the only one allowed to talk about the Vikings on this podcast. (laughs) She's on your corner. Yeah, exactly. Coming over to the Minnesota street. No, um, it's a a fascinating issue and something um, that when you set a case up like that, that in a perfect world when two teams, one has, a, they both had similar needs, just in different points in their franchise building aspect, that's how the Bills and, and Vikings landed in that scenario. Uh, it makes perfect sense. I'll give you the same Minnesota Vikings history, an example that doesn't work out in that same manner. The Vikings traded Randy Moss in, I don't know, 2003 or four. I was a fourth grader, but I'll tell you what, I do remember the players involved in that trade, Uh, It was a first round pick and a linebacker and the linebacker's name was Napoleon Harris. Again, one of those names, you'll just never forget anyone listening to this, unless you're from Minnesota or have Oakland Raider ties, probably don't remember that name. Napoleon Harris, a linebacker, Vikings definitely desperately needed a backer. They thought he could fill up the middle for them. That didn't work out. Then the first round pick they got, which I believe was a top like 14, a lottery style NBA pick, if you will. They drafted Moss's replacement, a receiver named Troy Williamson. I had his rookie, rookie jersey, number 19, and he switched to 82. I think we're going to thousands stuff here. But that pick didn't work out either. He's from South Carolina, had some drop issues. So when you trade guys like this, it's the cautionary tale of one side of the coin that right there and then the, the example Mary Kay laid out this past offseason with Justin Jefferson and Stephon Diggs. More often than that, it lands in the middle of the extremes of Randy Moss or Stephon Diggs. But the big difference between Moss, Diggs, and Beckham is health and production. And, and Mary Kay, I'm curious, what, if is there any sense on what Odell's market value is right now? You know, Stefan Diggs being where he was, it's pretty obvious he pulls a number one. Randy Moss coming off the, of you know, ridiculous five, six-year stretch there he had in Minnesota was easy to pull a number one pick. Do we know what Odell's value would be or even dan do you th- like what do you think odell's value may be i think that's a really important part of this when it comes to why the browns would pull the trigger on trading odell
2: yeah that's a, that, I mean that's a fair question and the, the value discussion is fair and i do think it's something we should talk about he is coming off an acl mm-hmm. and it might be tough for a gm to go to his owner and say yeah we're gonna give up a first round pick for a guy who's gonna cost us whatever whatever it is 15 million dollars something like that And he's coming off a torn ACL and kind of is developing this history of of injuries over the last few years. So I I am curious what the value of Beckham would be.
1: Well, that is obviously a huge consideration. And I've talked to some people about that, you know, just as I'm talking to different, you know, GMs and, and league types about what that might be. People seem to think that, uh, that he'll be fine coming off the torn ACL that he'll be totally fine, that, that guys come off of a torn ACL even in their first year back, as we've seen uh, Adrian Peterson do, uh, that they'll come back from a, a torn ACL and and be absolutely fine in, in their first year back. And we have seen, it really looks to me like he's far ahead of schedule. I think he's one of these sort of, uh, you know, just a sort of a physical freak or a specimen where he's just healing well, And, you know, today he was actually kind of making cuts and stuff like that on his Instagram story. He looks like he's really well on his way to being able to play at the start of the season. He's still got a nice long way to go. So I don't think that's going to be an issue. And I still believe that you can get a first round pick for Odell Beckham Jr. I think some team would still view him as that key piece to getting to the Super Bowl. And and you can you can kind of look at what what Diggs did and and see what he was able to do for the Bills. I think somebody will look at Odell and view him uh, through that prism. And also, uh, he just brings a lot of, you know, marketing to your team. If fans are allowed to come, he'll, he brings ticket sales to your team. So what you give up in terms of that salary, you know, you probably get back in terms of, Being on, you know, being on national television and all the things that go along uh, with having an Odell Beckham Jr. on your team, it just takes you up into a different stratosphere.
2: So the more I think about it, and maybe this is just because we all have too much time to think about stuff right now, but the more I think about it, I'm not as convinced as I was, say, two weeks ago that Odell and Jarvis will both be on this team next year. It just, it felt like it was too, it almost feels too easy. But if this team is really going to try and get faster, something's got to give. They don't play more than three receivers on the field, right? We know that. Something has to give somewhere. They both make a ton of money. And and I don't know which one it's going to be, but I I guess, you know, ask me this next week and I might say something different, but it, it just almost feels like, there's something big is going to happen this offseason with this mm-hmm. football team, and I, I guess you have to start with those two guys. Yeah. Ellis, what do you think?
0: It, it makes sense because I was just doing this in my head the other day on the type of contracts the Browns internally are ready to start handing out, and you quickly start realizing as you go down the list of big name guys from Denzel Ward to Wyatt Teller to Nick Chubb, you're looking at all those players. Probably demanding and commanding between 13 and 15 million dollars a year, probably more 12, 11 in Nick Chubb's range. But I know this isn't a running back conversation, but I realized this the other day. If Nick Chubb is in the market for a a Derrick Henry contract, that's fine. But Kareem Hunt signed for basically half that this past offseason. So is this a locker room that would want Nick Chubb making? double what Kareem Hunt makes like it, it just it, it, it solidifies the point of what you guys are saying like eventually the, the bill becomes due and that's right where the Browns are at and those luxuries that we have talked already at length about the Sheldon Richardson and these two receivers that's the, the the casualties that may come of it and I can't envision this team yet without Odell partially because I want to see what it could be with Odell I laid it out like this to a friend the other day who was trying to make the case that Baker Mayfield played better without Odell Beckham Jr. When you look at the numbers, there's no denying that. The conversation is different between did Baker – does Baker play better without Odell and is the team better without Odell? You'd think they'd be hand-in-hand, but what I think happened was not having Odell allowed Baker to grow as a quarterback and become just a a fully functioning, scheme-oriented, reading the field – Thrower and progression reader. Where when Odell was there, he had to think about where he was all the time. Now that Baker's matured into that quarterback, I want to see him have Odell again, and and what that would look like one last time. Simply, I think not having Odell Beckham Jr. helped Baker late, but killed them early. Or excuse me, I said that backwards. Helped them early, killed them late, and that's the issue with envisioning Odell Beckham Jr. leaving this team. And as as far as Jarvis Landry, it just feels like production is still there. He makes sense being here, but I get it there. Dan, I, I feel you on that. Something reckoning might be too strong of a word, but something does feel like it just, when you look at the numbers, it has to give.
1: Well, as far as, as Nick Chubb is concerned, and I've written a little bit about this and I'll probably delve a little bit more into it in some of these things that I'm doing. Um, but I think that they will do, we talked a little bit about this on the podcast the other day. I really do think that they will do try to do some kind of a creative deal with him if they do it this offseason uh, they'll do some kind of a deal uh, similar to what they did with kareem where it's sort of an incentive laden deal that gives the, the the player some upfront money some protections some guarantees and some per game bonuses so that you can make a ton of money uh, but also protects the club a little bit in the long term so they'd have to really kind of uh, get super creative with that uh, I, I don't think they're going to do a you know, a, a real super long $12 million a year flat out type of contract. I mean, maybe they'll ultimately end up doing that, but I don't know that they will. Um, so that that's that on that front. Um, as far as Odell is concerned, um, I just think that um, it just seems like they're not going to have the time once again.
0: Yeah. Yeah
1: to get the chemistry together because right. there's no off season. Again, this is another virtual off season. So they're not going to have that. Uh, they're not going to have, you know, he's probably not going to be a hundred percent in training camp. So you would actually kind of be heading into the season, not knowing again, you would be taking a gamble on wondering if they're going to have that magic. And this with, with Odell now, um, there aren't. We we looked at Austin Hooper's numbers the other day too. There there are so many weapons and so many places to go with the ball that you you know you you just might not need a guy like that that potentially could go somewhere else and have 88 receptions. I mean that's not going to happen here. He's not going to get that many targets. There are too many weapons for that to happen.
0: I completely agree, Mary Kay, and raise a great point about. Odell and Baker just continually not having time to get those reps and get on the same page, and quite frankly, we're probably flirting with the definition of insanity at this point. Trying the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. We'll, we'll be going into year three of Baker and Odell not having that offseason time to work together and get their timing to on on pace because of injuries and whatnot. So it's a it's a great point. Might you might just cut your losses and just instead of wasting a third season and hoping this gets right and all the talk that comes with it when it doesn't just moving on
2: and i and i didn't get the sense from andrew barry the other day and and we've talked about how hard he can be sometimes to read and figure out but i sure didn't get the sense that it was like all right let's run it back with, with everything now i know obviously they're going to try and fix this defense right that's the counterpoint to that well of course they're not going to run it back they got to fix the defense but i i don't know i just didn't get the sense that even on the offensive side, it was like, ah, all right, let's run it back. And I don't know how much they can do because they got, they've got some big deals. They've got lots of guys locked in that you're not going to touch or move. But if you're going to start talking about making changes on the offensive side, you got to start with those two $15 million wide receivers and kind of, you know, figure out what you want to do with them first and, and then work from there.
1: Another thing to consider is this wide receiver class in this draft is excellent. I mean, they're talking about it being better than last year's wide receiver class. And I haven't had time to completely, you know, study it or look it over yet. But there are some really good, speedy, excellent receivers uh, in in this class. And I think that uh, if they did end up being able to get a first round pick, and I, I actually don't even know if that would be a deal breaker, if you couldn't. But I mean, I think they can. But I don't know that I, that it would be off the table if you had to take something less than that uh, just because of what's coming down the pike and the money that's involved. But there are some really good receivers that you can get even a little bit later in the first round. There, there's talk that six can go again in the first round of this draft, uh, which means that whatever, say you do end up getting a first round pick from somebody You know, maybe you package something, maybe you package your two picks or something, or maybe one of them is good enough to get one of those guys. But, you know, conceivably, you could end up with Odell's replacement and a decent pass rusher out of the first round if you play your cards right. Well, I'm glad you brought up the
2: draft. Oh, Ellis, go
0: ahead. Real quick, again, same thing. I'm glad you brought up the draft, Mary Kay, but for this reason, I think the depth at receiver – is going to dictate two things. First, as you laid out, it, it, it is a great opportunity for teams to do exactly what we started this podcast talking about flipping a veteran for a potential Justin Jefferson, but really what I think this comes down to then, and I know you said the first round pick probably isn't a deal breaker, but it's how closely do NFL GMs consider Odell Beckham Jr. to Stephon Diggs. If they don't think the gap is that large, then we're in a pretty interesting range here where, the Browns could explore some, some pretty talented options at replacing him. If they think he's more of a second or third round pick value, you know, like Antonio Brown at one point was traded for a third round pick and that was off the field stuff too tied into it. But these, these things change very quickly in the league and, you know, Randy Moss, again, let's go back to Randy Moss. He was traded from the Raiders to the Patriots for all that, all that much and then went on to break the receiving touchdown record. So the, what, what, ends up being the consensus overall value of Odell Beckham Jr. compared to Stefan Diggs is what I think is something really to watch as we figure out the future of Beckham in Cleveland. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Okay. So let's shift gears then to the draft because Ellis, you have been working on a draft oriented uh, post today. So tell us what you've been working on and then we can kind of uh, work off of that a little bit.
0: Yeah. So as we all are, we're switching gears here to the NFL draft. Uh, much later than I'm sure any Browns fan is really used to switching gears here. It's not head coach talk and, you know, top 10 or even first overall talk right now. We're talking about the 26th pick in the first round of the NFL draft. And that means we're looking at guys, we're targeting guys that aren't franchise changers. Like you can find gems at places in the draft. We get that. But when you're picking in the top 10 and specifically the top five of the NFL draft, it tends to be a, a rather sure thing. And again, I know Browns fans don't like hearing that because of the history, but all you have to do is look at the quote from Mike Tomlin this year when he was miked up talking to Chase Young on the sidelines and he told him straight up, I don't ever want to lose enough games to land a player like you. And I think that rings true throughout this league when it comes to the defensive side of the football. Miles Garrett, you look at him, you, you realize real quickly that's generational talent. Chase Young's the same way, the Bosa's, and when you're talking linebacker, uh, the Devin Bushes of the world, the Devin White's of the world, the guys, as soon as they get on a football field, they change outcomes. That's what happens at the top of the draft when you're talking defense. That's not what the Browns reality is this year, but the reality is that they need defensive players. So what I'm working on is a post about the top five linebackers that the Browns can realistically grab that could immediately help them. This team is in desperate need for linebacker help. We'll get into if, I think that's actually where they'll go in the first round, but there's no denying that that this position is the one of most need. Uh, the three lowest PFF grades, or I'll say the four lowest PFF grades on defense with the Browns this year were in no particular order, just the bottom four, Anderson Deho, Sheldrick Redwine, Mac Wilson, and Jacob Phillips, two of those guys being younger linebackers. Phillips, of course, getting a longer leash because he's a rookie in Andrew Berry's inaugural class. Mac Wilson, as we've talked about towards the end of the season on one of those first wrap up shows, just having a disappointing sophomore season becoming more of a question mark. Simply, the Browns need to address that position. So I've been working on those top five guys guys that aren't guys who are going to go in the top 20 picks aren't going to be included in this list. But because of what Mary Kay said about how deep of a wide receiver class this is because of the fact that there's probably going to be five quarterbacks going in the first round, four of which in the top ten, make this class of defensive players, we can go broader than that, just because the defensive guys, linebacker, edge rusher, and DBs, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for value, whether it's at 26 or later, due to both the luxury positions, the flashy positions, getting selected first, and then just the overall depth at this spot. So uh, we can start there, you know, rather than throwing out names and, you know, bronze fans are going to have a chance to learn all these guys and, and dive into them when they can, but just on draft philosophy in general, you guys feeling like how I'm feeling like even a linebacker is the most glaring need. It might not be their top priority.
2: Yeah, that, that was really kind of what I wanted to, to ask both of you. I, you know, I'm seeing mock drafts come out, whether it's from, you know, the typical draft experts that, that you kind of follow or just other mock drafts. And they've got the Browns going linebacker at 26. And I just, I don't know, Mary Kay, it's hard for me to think this team is going to pick a linebacker at, at number 26, because first of all, even though Ellis, everything you said is true, right? The, the run on quarterbacks pushes talent down and, and things like that. But you're still probably not going to get like the number one or two linebacker in this class at that spot. So I I don't know. It's just hard for me to believe this team would really go linebacker with a first round pick.
1: Well, I agree with you there because as we have come to find out, they don't really put such a, a premium on the position. So therefore, if number 26 turns out to be your very first pick, I kind of doubt that they would go linebacker there. Now, if the draft falls that way, and the absolute highest rated guy on their board is a linebacker at number 26, then they would probably do that. But I, I'm not believing that that's going to be the case. I don't think a linebacker at 26 is what they would do. I just, I mean, I think that they've shown and they've demonstrated that they feel like they can get that job done by grabbing a guy here or there, grabbing a free agent, a trade, a free eight, you know, uh, an undrafted guy, whatever the case may be, that they don't have to commit a first-round pick uh, to that position because they—I just don't think that they have it rated that highly.
2: So I want to throw something out there too. I, I saw there was a, a chart going around on Twitter earlier this week, and I, I don't have it in front of me, but I, I kind of remember what it was saying. It was basically saying the four-two-five was essentially the most used defensive formation this year. Uh, and and that we're seeing that trend away from linebackers that we've been seeing. Like, it's just growing more and more. On top of that, we know, I mean, Joe Woods has told us in press conferences, we know Grant Delpit was really important to this defense and his versatility and ability to play multiple spots. It's part of, you know, it it sort of helped lead to to kind of pulling the trigger on the Ronnie Harrison deal, even if that was a guy they liked before Delpit went down. They liked that versatility at safety. And the other thing I keep thinking is, and, and Alice, I'm curious if you noticed this too, going back and watching some of these games throughout the season. The Browns spent so much of this season, you know, they'd spread out these big packages and it just felt like over and over again, whether it's Kareem Hunt or putting Jarvis Landry inside with, with, you know, three tight ends or Odell inside with three tight ends. It felt like they hunted matchups with linebackers, kind of like, you know, pick and roll in the NBA where you're hunting the, the right matchup. And it felt like they would hunt linebackers in some of these matchups. And I can't imagine Kevin Stefanski is doing that on offense. And then he's sitting down with Andrew Barry and saying, you know what we really need, Andrew? We need linebackers on defense. I, I just, I don't know if the vision of this organization is having a bunch of big dudes at linebacker. I really do think it's versatility in the back end.
0: Dan, it's, it's a great observation. The the play that comes to mind is the Jarvis Landry third and six or something. I think it was in Pittsburgh. And they just ran a simple like whip out and he had five yards of separation on a Steelers linebacker out of empty on a critical down. And it was probably the easiest completion of the Brown season. And you're right. I think he tips his hand there. You know, I had never thought of that, but it's a great point because he tips his hand a bit there when showing that, all right, I think these guys are, are slow and we can take advantage of them. So why would we allocate top end of the draft resources on guys that, Tend to be slower and can get taken advantage of. It, I, I really am digging that logic. I follow the thinking. The only counter is when you look at the teams that played this past week, uh, right. the Bills and Trey Edmonds, the 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 Bucks with um, Devin White. You see those linebackers that, when they are the some of the best, they are difference makers. But that, again, it goes with how I started this. A lot of those guys are found at the top of the draft anyway. So if they're not available, don't reach. Instead, zig when people expect you to zag. And that's why I think this team, they're going to draft a lot of DBs, I think. They're going to prioritize edge rusher. And once again, linebacker probably gets lost in the shuffle.
1: But here's another thing to consider, and we've talked about this before on this pod. You also have to consider who you have to play. Yeah. You have to consider what's going on in the AFC North. So you've got to figure out, they, they, they were not able to solve the, the Baltimore riddle. Okay. So they've got to figure that out. And that's a unique offense. And, um, you know, it's going to require something different than what they were able to do in, the, in those first couple of games. So you've got to figure out what to do with with Lamar and with that running game. Uh, because once again, it's vitally important uh, that you must try to win the division to get to the playoffs and not have to relent. Now, of course, it's easier to get to the playoffs now because there is that third wild card spot. Definitely easier. But still, uh, you want to be aiming to win your division. And some of what you do has to be geared toward stopping what's going on in your own division. And then you got, you've got to look out a little farther and try to figure out how you're going to stop Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill and Patrick Mahomes and, and that offense. So it, it'll be interesting. I mean, I mean, the Steelers always seem to have great linebackers. I mean, they don't, they haven't devalued <laughs> the linebacker position. Um, so it'll be interesting. I mean, I, I think they need to add a couple of good ones. I just don't know that they would do it at number 26.
2: Yeah. yeah Mary I, think, I think I'm pro linebacker. Oh, sorry. Yep. I do wonder though, that's the, the answer to that question is, do you slow, do you slow those offenses down with linebackers or safeties? Right. And I guess that's what they're, what they have to answer. Go ahead, Ellis. Right.
0: And, and that's exactly it, Dan and Mary Kay brings up a good point about building to beat your division opponent where linebacker probably is a little more important when you're facing a downhill running team, like the Ravens compared to if they were in the NFC West, and we're dealing with a lot of more th- throwing teams in the in the Cardinals, and you know the Niners run, but in sort of the Rams, but they're w- more wide zone. They'll challenge you horizontally, where the, the Ravens want to get downhill. And then Lamar is just a whole nother factor. I don't know if I am having recency bias, and I will just have the entire offseason to think about that swing pass to Daryl Williams and BJ Goodson trying to chase him down, and he's just not there. But for me, to Mary Kay's point about beating the Ravens, I'm now scared of the Joe Mixon swing pass. I don't know. I, I, just, I know that I know that this front office isn't basing their whole draft around a check down throw to a running back on third down. But sometimes and specifically in playoff football, that's what it comes down to. And the Browns couldn't make that play. There's linebackers in this draft that probably would help them and make that play in the following season
1: and and to dan's point too and, and that that's a that is that is a great point but to dan's point as well i do think that's where uh the grant Dell pits come in i think they're kind of looking for a hybrid uh you know sort of like big nickel safety you know a guy that can uh that can do the work of a linebacker or a safety so i think they're kind of looking for more of those type of guys that can that can cover that can stop the run that can get those passes out of the backfield that can cover a tight end or, or whatever the case may be. So it'll be interesting to, to see how they approach this.
2: Yeah. I, I think the the cool thing about this offseason is I think we'll have a better idea of the defensive philosophy this year, kind of based on, on what they do as they attack that. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and then I will tell you guys what I was working on today. Okay. Back on the orange and Brown talk podcast and lobby, Mary Kate Cabot, Ellis Williams. And I today was hunting through free agency listings trying to find some guys that maybe I would be willing to spend money on. Maybe the Browns would be willing to spend money on. And it's not an exhaustive list, but I came up with three, three names that kind of stood out to me. So I had a couple of rules. First of all, I wanted to keep it to young guys. So I wasn't looking at guys who were over the age of 30. I was looking at, I was kind of looking at guys who are maybe going into their second contract looking at guys that maybe you would be like, go by their team because of cap reasons or something like that. So these are three of the names I came up with. And I'm just kind of curious uh, what you guys think. I'm going to start at maybe the least interesting of the three. And that is um, a guy that might've been in play at the trade deadline last year, had he not gotten hurt. And that's Brian Poole of the jets. He's 28, a little bit older than the other two guys on the, on this list. Uh, PFF projects him. At three years, six million a year. He's played on back-to-back one-year deals with the Jets the last two years. He's coming off shoulder surgery. I, I believe it was surgery. I know he hurt his shoulder. Um, this is a slot guy. That, that's really what kind of where he's he's made his money. He's been really good in the slot. I think the Browns need to find another outside corner. Yeah, you know, like we've talked about this endlessly on this podcast. I don't think you can just count on Greedy Williams. They need to find another outside corner, but you know, if you can get a good slot guy too for around, I mean, they paid Kevin Johnson three and a half million with incentives that could have gotten it to six. So, you know, if you have to pay six or 7 million to bring Brian pool here for a couple of years, that's a really important position. That's a guy that kind of intrigues me.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, that sounds like the kind of guy that uh, that Andrew Berry would be interested in as well. A guy at the right price point, a guy at the right age, Uh, they're always looking to improve the secondary. And as you mentioned, you know, somebody that, that has the versatility to do a bunch of different things. He, he sounds like a Barry kind of person.
0: Yeah. This is a really interesting position for the Browns front office to be in because if we're just looking at Andrew Barry's history with this team, it's a one year sample size and it showed them making huge splashes on offense, you know, highest paid tight end, the highest paid tackle really going for it. I'm curious and and Dan the rest of your list may get to this, but I'm curious to see if that was just a one year thing, understanding the cap and where they had the position to splurge on some high priced items because they knew they didn't have their own guys to take care of and now they probably do or if that's going to be a theme. I don't think you there's much longevity in continued free agent spending. So this will probably be the type of guy they they target. Mary Kay's keyword was price point. I think that's exactly what a, a deal like this would come down to. A deal that would happen on maybe day three or four of free agency. Uh, you know, not one of those day starters like we saw the Hooper and Conklin deals be. Uh, but, you know, if they come in and make another big splash, it, it, it's going to tell me something that I, I wasn't expecting. So I, I'm just... Rat- more than like player specific, which of course is important. And we'll do all the film yeah. breakdown and all that if, and when it happens. But to me, I'm, I'm far more interested in just the the philosophy behind this
1: offseason and how they spend their money in free agency. And keep in mind that uh, we've talked about this so many times before, they will always be looking for those one-year contracts so that they can get yeah. uh, the compensatory picks. And we'll, we'll start to see how that pans out from this crop and how they did that this year as, as we move forward.
2: Well, I also wonder how much too, they kind of play the variance card here. So you sign a slot guy and maybe he comes in and he's really good for you one year. And then the next year, you know, we know that some of these performances aren't always repeatable. Now pool has been really good for a couple of years. Um, so I wonder how much they, they kind of, you know, if you're talking about a, a guy playing inside and not a shutdown corner, you know, maybe you don't want to give that guy three years. Right. Maybe you only think that it's realistic to get a year or two out of that guy. So, so that'll be interesting. Okay. I do have a big name on here. I do have a big money guy on here, but I'm going to save him for last. Uh, the next guy I'm going to go to, I wanted to look for a receiver. So there's a few interesting names out there. Uh, you know, Corey Davis is one. If, if you like him, Mary Kay mentioned Brashad Perryman. I, I think it was yesterday here on the pod. He's an interesting mm-hmm. guy. Still pretty young. I think he's 27.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: This is the name I, I kind of dragged out though. I had a really good bounce back year this year. Uh, spot track or spot track, whatever it is, projects a little higher than I would want to pay for him. They project four years, forty nine million for this guy. PFF three years, eight point three three million, which is a little more. Uh, I, I could stomach that kind of deal. Curtis Samuel from the Panthers. He's fast. He's versatile. Eight hundred fifty one receiving yards, two hundred rushing yards this year. Uh, a one eleven point one rating when he was targeted by Teddy Bridgewater. And he's, like I said, he's fast. And that's something that I kind of looked at too. I wanted guys who checked that speed box. Now, maybe that's a little too much money for a guy like that, but he's he's one of the names I kind of circled as, uh, okay, let's see what happens with him in Carolina. And if he hits the market, kind of what that market looks like.
1: Very intriguing prospect. And, and how old is he again now, Dan?
2: He is 24.
1: Oh, so I he's, mean,
2: he's very young. This would be his second contract.
1: I mean, those they, they love to hit those guys in at the 24, 25, 26. Uh, that that's when you want to get them, uh, especially when you're talking about a receiver and you want to you want them to have that speed. So uh, when you talk about that kind of production uh, and the versatility to get uh, you know rushing yards, receiving yards, I would pay that amount of money for for Curtis Samuel. I think he would be worth that.
2: Would would you yeah. pay it though if Odell and Jarvis were still on the team?
1: Probably not. No. Okay. Yeah. Ellis,
2: did I, did I steal your question. Yeah, that's that's exactly it because that would
0: come down to where the money's being allocated at receiver. It would be a world probably where they move on from Odell Beckham Jr. Perhaps bring Rashard Higgins back at a, a team friendly number, and then you're looking at a trio of Higgins on the outside, Samuel as your gadget guy, and Landry moving freely between outside and slot i am interested in that it it, it sounds sexy um it's again i just i just don't know enough about the way this front office will want to spend their money in terms of receiver i was not surprised at all that tackle and tight end got that type of money knowing what kevin Safansky's plans were we just haven't seen how he truly values the receiver position because he inherited these guys in Odell Beckham Jr. and Jarvis Landry. And he didn't draft a receiver until the sixth round. So I really just don't know enough about truly where Andrew Barry and Kempstvansky value that position. If they do, they'd prove it in going to get a guy like Curtis Samuel.
2: Okay, so here's my big money guy. And this is a position that I think we've all agreed is, is very important. Try and find that edge rusher to go next to Miles Garrett it's not Jadavian Clowney it's not Yannick Ngakwe although I'd certainly listen to the the second one of, of those two so the Saints are kind of in salary cap hell and it's it's why Pete Browns fans on Twitter keep bringing up Marshawn Lattimore oh could the Browns maybe make a trade for a guy like Marshawn Lattimore I don't know if that the Saints would want to give up a young corner like that and I've, I've read some stuff from their beat that has kind of played out scenarios where he can get under the cap and still keep Marshawn Lattimore. The guy I'm kind of eyeballing is a guy who had a career year this year. Spotrak projects three years, $30 million PFF four years at 11.25 million years. So it's big money, 26 years old, six foot four, 266 pounds. Trey Hendrickson, 13 and a half sacks. Uh, Played 586 snaps. Now he missed their playoff game, their, their opening playoff game against the Bears. He was hurt. This is what stood out to me though, because you have to be careful with guys who kind of have breakout years, right? In contract years, you have to be a little bit cautious, but this is what stood out to me. If you go back to the 2017 combine, his 40-yard dash time was equivalent to what Miles Garrett ran, and his 10-yard split and 20-yard splits in the 40 were really close to Miles Garrett. Now, some of the other stuff, you know, the vertical leap stuff like that wasn't close. That's where Miles Garrett just blew everybody out of the water at his position. But when I see those 10 yard splits and 20 yard splits, I feel like that's something the Browns will value. Most analytics front offices are going to value that sort of thing. They're going to look at that and say, this guy at least has some of those athletic traits. And I just wonder if they would maybe make a run at a player like that even though he's really only had the one year of big production and that was last year.
1: That that was what I was going to ask you. Um I think teams that go for pass rushers even when they look at, back at them in college they look for some consistency, you know, where you can stack a couple of years of sacks so that you know it's sort of not like some fluky thing. So, how many did he have this year again?
2: He had 13 and a half this year.
1: This year he did and then The year, so the year, but this was his breakout sack year. This
2: was his. This was his breakout sack year.
1: Yeah, because I remember when I was writing about Miles throughout the season, he was always right there. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that's the that's the kind of production you'd be looking for, and I don't think it, it wouldn't scare me off that uh that he didn't have a year like that before i mean did he have like half that many in a year before his, like that?
2: his biggest year before that was uh in 2019 he had four and a half sacks and 13 games
1: okay interesting now, this and is the first
2: year he started 15 games this year for the saints this was the first yeah. year he really started for them
1: i mean if you did it in the nfl you sh- you've shown you can do it so uh you know he has the capability of doing it that's somebody that i i would be very very in- intrigued by if you can pro- produce uh, those kind of sack numbers opposite miles Garrett. That's what he needs. He needs somebody to take uh, the pressure off of him. He needs the attention off of him. I mean, it was weird this year because, you know, you had miles that started off very strong and you had Olivier that was super quiet in the beginning. And then after miles got COVID, then Olivier picked up the ball and kind of carried it pretty much from there. I mean, miles only had two and two and a half sacks in his last, how many ever games? I mean, eight games or something like that, six games, whatever. Um, So I would, that's the kind of guy that I would be looking for. I would be looking for somebody that can come in here and, uh, and just kind of take your head off and and give miles a, a little bit of a breather.
0: Yeah. For me, this again, comes down to draft philosophy. I'm waiting to see where the Browns think they need to add talent because that's a position that they don't see themselves being able to improve internally, or it's a spot where they are confident in late raising the level of play of guys they have. So when you look at the defensive line this year, you, you know, you consider the Browns edge rushers a strength. Of course you have miles Garrett, but Mary Kay just laid out how Olivier Vernon really came on late. And I think they desperately and dearly missed him in that, in the playoff run. That was, that was just obvious Mm -hmm. is, The combination of Joe Woods and Chris Kiffin on the defensive line is able to get the best and coach up these young guys where by year two, I think the the jump Jordan Elliott takes or lack thereof takes next year will be a big tell on this. If they can just develop uh, internal talent, then that answers this question. Like, look at the offensive line. Wyatt Teller making that jump has a lot to do with his offseason and some hidden potential, I'm sure. But that's uh, that has also. just as much to do with a Bill Callahan effect and great coaching and development. So if the Browns think they can do that themselves, they're just going to, they'll draft rather than spend. It's like the Steelers and wide receivers. Juju Smith Schuster is going to walk this year. They're not going to pay him. They develop receivers through the draft and internally. They did it with Mike Wallace gone, Antonio Brown gone. It's the Antoine Randall L gone. It's a long list. The Minnesota Vikings and cornerbacks. Mike Zimmer is just a, a DB machine and all, he'll draft a DB rather than pay one in free agency. So we're at such a fun infancy in this front office and coach, coach coaching staff development and strengths and weaknesses in that, that once, after probably after this year's over, this offseason's over and half, probably halfway through the regular season, we can start seeing what that first class is coming into form as. We're gonna see where the strengths and weaknesses lie in the evaluation and development of this organization. And then we can start figuring out much more easily where they'll allocate the money the player individually I, I really like there's some uh draft eligible guys this year that have player comps to him but again to me this so much as has to do with philosophy compared to just fit because this team probably isn't isn't in a position to just spend freely like it did this past offseason.
2: It would be a lot of money in two guys. If, if yeah. you gave a guy a, a four year or whatever, I was eleven year, eleven million dollar year contract, whatever it ended up being. And edge rusher is a premium position, and, and I think there'll be a lot of people circling this. But those those athletic testing numbers just kind of stood out to me a little bit when I went and looked. Um, like I said, just just so we have it here, um, he ran a four six five forty. Miles ran a four six four. But then the, these splits, Miles was at 1.63 10-yard split. Uh, Trey was at 1.59 10-yard split, and they were both at 2.68. That's all from NFLCombineResults.com. So he has those athletic – and, you know, again, when you, when you start talking about vertical and, and some of that stuff, Miles just blew everybody out of the water. But um, some of those athletic traits that I, I think they're going to look for in guys, and if, they look, if they're sitting there and saying, well, he's only had one year of production – and they kind of go back and start looking at some of that 2017 stuff and some of that, that combine and draft stuff. They, they might kind of see the, the profile of a guy that can produce at the level they want him to produce.
1: Well, not only that, you're not going to be paying Olivier Vernon next year. So you will have some money to commit to uh, an edge rusher, and they have demonstrated over uh, you know their first season uh, that they're they're willing to pay. They're willing. They they offered Jadavian Clowney more money than anybody else did. So they're willing to pay for a good edge rusher. Uh, they you know they paid Olivier Vernon 11 million bucks. So I I would have to think that they they would be willing. I would have to say they will be willing to pay that amount of money. If they feel like that guy is going to bring that kind of sack production, production, and they're not going to have a ton of money tied up necessarily in their um, defensive tackles. Uh, They're not going to pay Larry Ogunjobi. I mean, he's going to be gone. So they could do something like this as well as draft a young edge rusher and, uh, and develop him.
0: Yeah. One thing we're in complete agreement on is that this team is looking for a monster to pair alongside Miles Garrett, a traditional 6'5", you know, 6'4", 6'5", 6'6", 250, 60 pound guy that can put his hand in the dirt, a traditional defensive end and get after the quarterback. They're going to add some guys. And again, it just comes down to, can they get the job done or not? Because this team really isn't in a spot where they can wait and develop some talent. Adrian Claiborne isn't gonna is not an every down player. Olivier Vernon, of course, coming off that ruptured Achilles, they need to find a guy to plug in alongside Miles Garrett who can help immediately in Week One.
2: All right, there we go. That's what we're working on here at uh, Cleveland.com. You'll be able to see all of these stories here at Cleveland.com/slash/Browns over the next few days, uh, so make sure you check that out. And some of them might be behind that Football Insider uh, paywall, so make sure you check out Football Insider. It's the blue banner at the top of the page, and get yourself sign up for that. For Ellis and Mary Cam, Dan, thanks for listening.